Good day to you. This is Thursday, February 10th, 2022. I am Pastor Neil Wemus, and this is your daily scripture meditation. Today we will be in Job chapters 28 and 29. So let me bring that to the screen for you. It says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. And just as a note, Job is the one speaking. And this is kind of what we're going to be in for a while. This constant back and forth between Job and his friends. Um, until basically, yeah, anyways. So man puts an end to darkness, and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. The pa that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eyes has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. The thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold, nor mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and sees everything under the heavens, when he gave to the wind its weight, and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. And Job again took up his discourse and said, This is chapter 29, verse 2. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. 
as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed out, washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the father was who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters, with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited, and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and, I, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. This is where we conclude for today. So because we did not get to the large catechism yesterday, uh, we're going to pick up on that today. And so we are in paragraph 13 of the large catechism. It writes, this is Martin Luther. So you can easily understand what and how much this commandment requires. So remember, we're dealing with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. A person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one else. For to have God, you could easily see, is not to take hold of him with our hands or to put him in a bag like money or to lock him in a chest like silver vessels. Instead, to have him means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him. To cling to him with the heart is nothing else than to trust in him entirely. For this reason, God wishes to turn us away from everything else that exists outside of him and to draw us to himself. For he is the only eternal good. It is though he, said, he would say, whatever you have previously sought from the saints or for whatever things you have trusted in money or anything else, expect it all from me. Think of me as the one who will help you and pour out upon you richly all good things. Ah, that is it. 
right there. To have God as our God is to trust that the good of our life is going to come from him and him alone. But so often we look for anything and everything else to provide good in our life. See here, you have the meaning of the true honor and worship of God, which pleases God and which he commands under penalty of eternal wrath. The heart knows no other comfort or confidence than in him. It must not allow itself to be torn from him, but for him it must risk and disregard everything upon earth. On the other hand, you can easily see and sense how the world practices only false worship and idolatry. For no people have ever been so corrupt that they did not begin and continue some divine worship. Everyone has set up as his special God whatever he looked to for blessings, help, and comfort. For example, the heathen who put their trust and power and dominion elevated Jupiter as the supreme God. Others who were bent on riches, happiness, or pleasure and a life of ease elevated Hercules, Mercury, Venus, or other gods. Pregnant women elevated Diana or Lucina and so on. So everyone made his god that interest to which his heart was inclined. So even in the mind of the heathen, to have a god means to trust and believe. But the error is this. Their trust is false and wrong. For the trust is not placed in the only God, beside whom there is truly no God, in heaven or upon earth. Therefore the heathen really make their self-invented notions and dreams of God an idol. Ultimately they put their trust in that which is nothing. So it is with all idolatry. For it happens not merely by erecting an image and worshipping it, but rather it happens in the heart. For the heart stands gaping at something else. It seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It neither cares for God nor looks to him for anything better than to believe that he is willing to help. The heart does not believe that whatever good it experiences comes from God. So, did you? I don't know if you just noticed that or caught this. But Luther, so far, we're in... Paragraph 21, and not until now has he actually addressed other religions. Now, Islam was not as, I mean, it was it was a reality at the time of Luther, but it did not have as much of a influence or impact as it does in our modern day. Um, atheism was definitely not rampant as it is now. So... But he nonetheless did address the false gods of ages past. Zeus, Apollos, these various Greek and Roman gods. And he's calling to the fact that they, this was a false trust. But notice that is not where he's spending most of his time. He's spending most of his time on the idols of mammon. The idols of uh, the love of our, our talents, our gifts, our um, our treasures, etc. Those are the idols that he focuses on. Those things that are in of themselves good things, but we have a tendency to elevate them and trust in them above God for our hope, for success, whatever. 
And the reason he's addressing that is because he's primarily writing to Christians. He knows that the person who's going to be reading the large catechism probably isn't struggling with um, worshiping Zeus or whatever. But they are struggling with these other things, and which is far more common amongst Christians. So paragraph 22, it says, Beside this, there is also a false worship and extreme idolatry, which we have practiced up to now. This is also still common in the world. All churchly orders are founded on it. It concerns the conscience alone, which seeks help, consolation, and salvation in its own works. This conscience imagines it can wrestle heaven away from God. It thinks about how many requests it has made, how often it has fasted, celebrated mass, and so on. Upon such things it depends and boasts as though unwilling to receive anything from God as a gift, for it wants to earn or merit heaven with abundant works. The conscience acts as though God must serve us and is our debtor, and we are his liege lords. What is this but reducing God to an idol? Indeed, an apple God, and elevated and regarding ourselves as God, but this point is a little too clever and is not for young pupils. Ah. Now there is the big idol. Ourselves. Oh, how often we look to ourselves for hope for salvation. We think that we can be good enough. We think that by going to church that we are doing the works necessary for salvation. And God's going to owe us for the work that we've done. Do you know how much I've done? Do you know how much I sacrificed God? I deserve salvation, we convince ourselves. But what have we done? We have turned God into our, our liege, our servant. And we are his God and master. Oh, see how subtly we turn ourselves into God. Let the following point be made to the simple. Then they may well know to remember the meaning of this commandment. We are to trust in God alone and look to him and expect from him nothing but good as from one who gives us body, life, food, drink, nourishment, health, protection, peace, and all necessaries of both temporal and eternal things. He also preserves us from misfortune. And if any evil befalls us, he delivers and rescues us. So it is God alone, as has been said well enough, from whom we receive all good and by whom we are delivered from all evil. So I think we Germans from ancient times name God more elegantly and appropriately than any other language from the word good. It is as though we were an eternal fountain that gushes forth abundantly nothing but what is good. 
and from that fountain flows forth all that is and is called good. So, let us pray. Lord God, may we seek you as God. May we serve no other. And may you forgive us our sins and debts where we have failed in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. God bless. <laughs>